Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Orbital Sabre Station Zero G, broadcasting science fiction, fantasy and historical radio. I'm Rob Jan and I'm on a solo mission today as our co-host Megan McHugh may or may not have been taken by the Skull Shapeshifters. Tune in next week to find out that. Meanwhile, today's episode is entitled It's Not Easy Being Green. Our podcast title is Podlock. Now, we're going to open a red file on Agent Nick Fury and the new Marvel series Secret Invasion, as well as get our police procedural feet wet with the new Amazon Prime streaming series Deadlock which I'm happy to report falls into the genre of Tasmanian feminist yeah noir. <laughs> All right, welly, welly, welly. Here we are for the ninth Marvel Studios television series, Secret Invasion, streaming on Disney+, and featuring the return to Earth of super spy Nicholas J. Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, in order to thwart, as it says on the show's tin, a secret invasion. Not that it's actually a secret from us, the viewers, as we already know that the emerald-hued shapeshifters known as Skrulls, fleeing from persecution by the Kree Empire, sought refuge on Earth 30 years ago as the Marvel Cinematic Universe measures time and is chronicled in the Captain Marvel movie, which took place in the 1990s. Now, in the real world, it was only in 2019 that Colonel Carol Danvers, played by Brie Larson, was promoted to Captain Marvel Dom in her own feature adventure. Fury and Danvers promised the remnant skulls that they would find them a new homeworld of their own. But events intervened. Events like the collapse of Nick Fury's S.H.I.E.L.D. organisation, thanks to long-term infiltration by HYDRA agents. And then there was the Infinity War, where half of Earth's population, including Nick Fury, was dead for five years, and then were resurrected by a techno-magical snap of the Infinity Nano-Gauntlet. You know, just a few wee bits of botheration. Now, Agent Fury has been a key through-line character of the MCU since he appeared in a post credit scene of the first Iron Man movie way back in 2008, where he wanted to talk to Tony Stark about the Avengers initiative. Sam Jackson has played Fury in 11 MCU movies, a couple of episodes of the television series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., as well as in video games and free episodes of the animated series What If. More than the sum of a few cameos, Fury is the glue that bound the Avengers together in Joss Whedon's initial Avengers movie. He's a super spy who gets out-espionaged by Hydra in the Russo Brothers' Captain America the Winter Soldier, and as already noted, digitally 
de-aged, he teamed up with Carol Danvers in the Captain Marvel movie in the setup for the Skulls establishing themselves on Earth. MCU Nick Fury differs from the original comic book hero in that he wasn't a Caucasian World War II soldier fighting alongside Captain America as the leader of the multinational Allied Special Forces unit, the Howling Commandos. Instead, he's African American and was born in the 1950s. Jackson was born in 1948. Comic book Nick Fury, thanks to a life-prolonging serum, the so-called Infinity Formula, was able to remain active well into the 21st century. It was created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, and Fury first appeared in Marvel Comics set in World War II in 1963. Parallel to that, he also appeared as a CIA agent in 1963, and by 65 was heading up the multinational organisation known as S.H.I.E.L.D. Prior and sometimes coincident with Jackson, the character has been voiced by a dozen different actors in video games and animated series, and perhaps most infamously by David Hasselhoff in the seldom-seen 1998 Fox live-action television movie Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which just does my head in when I think of Star-Lord's fan worship of the Hoff. Now, Jackson's MCU casting as Fury was predestined by the use of his likeness in the Ultimates comic book saga, as the character started in the early 2000s in the Ultimates Parallel Universe, which is a another one of those multiversal dimensions. And this take was intended to be much harder-edged and more adult, as it were, on the iconic Marvel characters, although not quite as pushy as the Max series of comic books, which they brought out later. Well, this idea of having Samuel L. Jackson in the comic book paid off, because, of course, when it came time to cast the MCU Nick Fury, there the template was, and he accepted the role. Righto, I think that's enough context for a mission briefing for the moment, so let's roll out a track that heralds yet another furious Sam Jackson slash Nick Fury cameo, this time in Iron Man 2, and it's simply tagged Nick Fury. Hello, this is Paul McGann, the I in Withnell and I, and I wouldn't listen to Zero G on 3 FM without serious medication. Nick Fury from the Iron Man 2 soundtrack to the 2010 movie directed by John This Is The Iron Way, Favreau. Music scored by John Debney, at least when the soundtrack isn't needle-dropping classic Akadaka tunes. We know Debney's work from films like 1993's fantasy Hocus Pocus and the swashbuckling Gina Davis pirate adventure Cutthroat Island and then there's Peter Hyams' Monster in the Museum movie, The Relic, and... On through I Know What You Did Last Summer and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 and 3, uh, Predators and the comedy Bruce Almighty. He also did the score for Rodriguez's Sin City, Venom, and right up to 2022 with Hocus Pocus 2. His television soundtracks are equally prolific and span genres and decades from the Twilight Zone reboot in the mid-1980s to episodes of Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, Sequest DSV and the 1996 Doctor Who Paul McGann telemovie. And Seth MacFarlane's light-hearted but sophisticated Star Trek space genre homage, The Orville. 
The son of a Disney producer, Debney has a long-time association with scoring the music for Disney projects, ranging across television shows, theme parks and movies. But that tracks from Iron Man 2, and Debney has nothing to do with the Secret Invasion series we're talking about now, so onwards. The subject is proceeding south, and I am in pursuit. Now, Secret Adv- Invasion was originally a comic book crossover story saga, and Brian Michael Bendis wrote it, and it was illustrated by Len Il Francis Yu, and it ran through about oof, eight issues or so, as these things do in a mini-arc, and it was published way back in December 2008, roughly thereabouts. And it's not to be mistaken for the Multiverse comic book series that we've also talked about on the show. It's a six-episode tra- streaming series now, dropping once a week on Disney+. Plus, Of which the showrunner is Kyle Bradstreet, and he's also the head writer too. And he worked for four years on the Mr. Robot series. He's also been involved in shows like The Philanthropist. Copper and Borgia. He also worked on Berlin Station, and that last is actually a spy series. The episodes are directed by Ali Selim, and over the past 15 years, he's done about uh, 850 television commercials, and also some half-hour documentaries and music videos, too. He also has worked on episodes of Criminal Minds, Manhunt, Condor, and Grace Point. Now, I've already covered the plot of Secret Invasion, but to recap, for anyone who had one eye closed, or hidden under a patch, it sees Nick Fury return to Earth from setting up an orbital defence system known as Sabre, which includes space stations and other assorted bastions of salvation for the much-beleaguered planet Earth. Earth certainly does have needs for defence in the perilous cosmic environment of the MCU, given the number of inbound alien threats and incursions. Fury is back to stop a plan by a faction of Skrull shapeshifters who have been refugees on Earth for decades now, but some of their number have become frustrated by Fury and Captain Marvel's failure to live up to their promise in the 1990s to find them a new homeworld of their own, and have decided to take Earth as their new world. Well, they've done a few things with the scrolls for this series. They've still got their shape-shifting powers, of course, and I think for plot reasons they've developed it a bit further on. They can not only copy human form, but they can now copy memories so they can't be caught out by simple questioning about how you like your sandwiches sliced. They're immune to radiation levels that would kill a human as well, which of course forms part of the plot, and they are very, very strong. Not Thor or Hulk strong, but strong enough to win most bare-knuckled fights with puny humans. By the way, this is the first Phase 5 MCU television series, as I said, created by Kyle Bradstreet, and it's based upon Marvel Comics, and you can catch up with it on Disney Plus at the moment. Dropping one episode at a time. So let's have a look at who's playing in Secret Invasion. Actually, that's kind of hard to tell at times, because there's so much scroll infiltration into the ranks of our heroes. 
That's the whole point, really. Who knows? Quo Vardis, who goes there? Now, in his early 70s, Samuel Leroy Jackson reprises his role as the spy's spy, Nicholas Joseph Fury, for this series. Jackson, as an actor, is well-versed across multiple movie genres, including action-adventure, science fiction, comedy, and espionage, sometimes all of them at once. We also know him as one of Quentin Tarantino's go-to performers from Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Django Unchained, to The Hateful Eight, and other QT movies. Now, he played the spy game in Kingsman The Secret Service, and he was Jedi Knight Mace Windu in the Star Wars prequels. He's Nick Fury in the MCU, of course, and further into the superhero genre, he is the voice of the cool, ice-powered hero Frozone in the animated Incredibles movies, which some people have said are the best Fantastic Four movies ever made. <laughs> uh, M. Night Shyamalan also involved him in Super Heroics in one of his cover trilogy of superpower movies, Glass, in 2019. He was the villain in the Spirit movie, and he went toe-to-toe against King Kong himself in Kong Skull Island. He's been in other genre movies like Jurassic Park, Sphere, Deep Blue Sea, where he gives that memorable, abruptly interrupted speech, Astro Boy, the Robocop remake, and the horror movie Cell. He's also involved in a live-action remake of the Afro Samurai manga and anime, having voiced the character in the animated series. Phew, that's a whole lot to keep under that eye patch. Now, in Secret Invasion, he plays Nick Fury as a literally world-weary returning from his organisational duties in Earth Orbit Hero. But he is back in the gritty, ground-pounding, counter-terrorism work of his early years. He's clearly suffering from post-Thanos stress disorder as well, having been dusted by the Mad Titan's Infinity Gauntlet Snap, and then resurrected five years later by the Hulk's Nano Gauntlet Snap, as documented in Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. It's just occurred to me that uh, Fury now has some idea how Captain America felt after being frozen in the ice for all those decades. It's a character choice in the Secret Invasion series that Fury doesn't at least initially wear his eye patch, which means that he can go undercover because everyone's looking for a guy who looks like a pirate. <laughs> so, yeah, that uh, though he's nearly blind in one eye, the result of a close encounter with Captain Marvel's mother, Flurkin, weird alien cat. So settle down, I said, Flurkin. Uh, he nevertheless still seems to be a crack marksman, which will stand him in good stead, as there's lots of marksmanship required in this series, obviously. Now, Old Fury is an interesting change for the character, leaving the actor plenty of room to develop across several areas, including a long-term broship with the former leader of the more peaceful faction of the Earthbound Skrulls, which is to say Talos, played by Ben Mendelsohn. Now, I think this is a good idea, but, you know, it's not exactly an original idea for Samuel Jackson to be playing an older sort of more over-the-hill action hero type. He's done that before, so in a way that sort of frees him up to work on aspects of Nick Fury that he hasn't been able to develop all that much over time, so I'm looking forward to that too. Now, speaking of Ben Mendelsohn, we know him a lot from uh, his Melbourneian roots back in the old days, and 
he doesn't, uh, for a wonder, have to drop his Australian accent for the role of Talos, which is pretty cool. We also know him from the Star Wars saga, appearing in Rogue One. And aside from playing Talos in the Captain Marvel film and this series, he popped up as the character in Spider-Man Far From Home. Also, he's been in the 2009 Alex Proyas science fiction movie Knowing, Spielberg's Ready Player One, and there's a whole Australian career including Animal Kingdom and Spotswood. Mendelssohn plays Talos as a conflicted family um, being (laughs) trying to hold things together after the murder of his wife and the estrangement with his daughter, a young woman who's joined the Home in Our Own Skin Skull Faction who plan to take Earth for themselves. His friendship with Nick Fury is clearly solid from decades of off-screen notional backstory which the actors deftly underline throughout the content that I've seen so far. As a Skrull, Talos stands in a bit for the human superheroes that Fury is used to working with, providing some of the physical muscle as well. Now that's kind of an interesting thing. There seems to be a reluctance to get the bigger ones, as they're known, the Avengers involved in this obviously planetary threatening conflict, because they're worried about the Skrulls shape-shifting into superhero form and for what that might mean. And that's actually a legitimate worry. In the comic books, uh, there are super Skrulls who are actually able to take the powers and the power sets of superheroes, but not perhaps the power suits. Hmm, that's interesting. So this provides a conveniently good reason to bench some of our meta-humans from the MCU proper, although there are some other characters who do appear, I shall say, in this series. Talos' and Fury's friendship does take a beating, literally, in this series, as Talos is clearly conflicted by Fury having to take on, and in some cases kill, his fellow Skrulls, even if they are planning to bring down our world. Speaking of which, uh, Kingsley Ben-Adir plays the leader of the breakaway faction Gravik. I've seen him before in Peaky Blinders and the police detective show Vera. I think he's a pathologist in the Vera show. He's not just a terrorist in this show, and that will be developed as it goes on, and I expect aspects of that will further inflect the story as we go along, because I don't expect them to just do this straight on, these refugees are terrorists, which after all is not a very helpful message at the moment. Now, aligned with Gravik is Gaia, the daughter of Talos, and it's not spelled how you think, and she is played by Amelia Clark. Uh, We know her as Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones, of course, as well as playing Sarah Connor in the Terminator Genesis movie in 2015, and also a character in the Star Wars film Solo back in 2018. She's kind of got a kind of a punky feel to her. She's obviously really quite peeved at Fury for him not keeping his commerce to the Skrulls to find them an alternative homeworld to Earth. Uh, Well, I can't blame her for that. This is kind of very much a common motivation in science fiction films where somebody promises to (laughs) do something and doesn't fulfil it years later. And people are still feeling a bit raw about it and they come back at them. 
In fact, she has to get a lot in line with other characters in this particular series because a lot of people got a beef with Nick, and it's kind of legitimate in many ways. I like that about Marvel. They will grapple with the various facets of a problem. Of course, there's no excusing the fact that these scrolls want to basically kill off all of the humans, at least this faction do. But, you know, it's nice to see that there's some thought given into their motivations, as it were. So, we actually saw the character in the Captain Marvel film in 2019, but was uh, she was played by uh, younger girls in that one, because, you know, it was set earlier. Anyway, I think Amelia Clark does a, a fine job with this character, and it's not too far removed from the character that we saw in the um, Falcon and Winter Soldier series, too. So there's a bit of kindred spirits there. So obviously, you know, feisty young women with causes is a thing in the MCU, as it should be. All right, well, those are the um, the Skrulls and, um, and Nick Fury. So I think we'll play a track here called Being Green. We also know it is, it's not easy being green. And when I was listening to this before, it made me chuckle at how close this could be to actually a scroll singing this. A scroll take the form of Kermit the Frog, I'm sure that could happen. Uh, Jim Henson, of course, took the form of Kermit back in the day. And this song was written by Joe Raposo, and I think it uh, was first heard in 1970. It becomes something of a theme song for Kermie. This is Matthew Riley, creator of the Scarecrow and Jack West Jr. series, and you're listening to 3 R FM. Ah, waka waka, that was Being Green, also known as It's Not Easy Being Green, Kermit the Frog, Jim Henson, from an album called Sesame Street. Sesame Street, number one, original cast recording, back in the day, 1970, when that first came out on Sesame Street, covered by everybody since then. (laughs) Really, the list would take longer than I have today on the show to talk about it. Joe Raposo originally composing that song. Now, where were we? We were talking about the characters on Disney Plus's streaming series, Secret Invasion, which is about the potential Skrull shapeshifter takeover of the planet Earth. Olivia Coleman plays an MI6 handler called Sonia Folesworth. We know her from Broadchurch opposite David Tennant, although when she appeared in Doctor Who, it was actually opposite Matt Smith as Prisoner Zero. Of course, she was also Queen Elizabeth II in the Crown series. Now, she has some great scenes with Samuel L. Jackson, and this is the thing, when you get actors of that calibre put together in a scene, even though they're only really taking tea, or indeed something a little bit more alcoholic as happens in this show. Well, you know, the sparks fly, and I'd like to actually see them encounter each other more in the show as they go on. In the six episodes, there's room to breathe and to do all sorts of things. Anyway, she does have great chemistry with Fury as a character who knows him from his old spycraft days. She's something of a rival in this story, too, which leads to some much good-natured banter. Or if she knew John Steed from the British Avengers, or indeed a certain commander, Bond. Well, moving on, we have Don Cheadle reprising his role as James Rhodey Rhodes, also known as War Machine. Though I don't know if he actually gets suited up in that armour during this show. He has, of course, 
got his own Marvel TV series War Machine, which has been put on the back burner just at the moment, but is assuredly still coming in the, uh, the series Armor Wars. It will be very interesting to see how Cheadle does out of the War Machine suit, uh, if indeed he doesn't don it in this. Don Cheadle, haha. He's a fine actor, and I assume he will rise to the occasion, as did Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan in their Steve Rogers-less Marvel television series, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, because now Tony Stark is out of the foreground, but still, of course, always in the background in our memory. By the way, in the MCU timeline, it's actually this year that Tony Stark dies in the Battle of Avengers Compound, saving the universe from Thanos in October, I think. I'm not sure if they actually pinned down the specific date. Never mind, I'm sure you can check that out on the basis of any number of the ginormous statues erected to the memory of the great, the late, the heroic Tony Stark. <laughs> Alright, so moving on from War Machine, who seems to have lent into the role as a political advisor of some sort to the President of the United States in the series. So there's another aspect to the character that they can unfurl. We've got Kobe Smulders playing Agent Maria Hill. Now she's been in the MCU, well, all the way back to the Avengers movie. We know Kobe from How I Met Your Mother and True Calling and Smallville and Jeremiah and a number of other small genre roles that she's had. Um, so she is obviously Nick Fury's right-hand agent and as a long-running character in the series, I expect to, to see her get a, a bit of development in this show and, uh, well, things work out the way they work out. And I thought that playing her as a more relatable character in this, I thought, was a good idea. And full marks to Kobe Smulders for, once again, appearing as Agent Maria Hill. A thankless task in many respects, but she acquits herself well. Martin Freeman reprises his role as Everett K. Ross. Nothing to do with Thaddeus Ross or any of the other Rosses in the Hulk canon, but... Um, he uh, used to be working for the CIA, and now he's not. He was the go-to spy in the Black Panther movies, and he keeps appearing <laughs> in the MCU. He's very far, that is, Martin Freeman is, from his dressing gown-clad Arthur Dent Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy role, but perhaps not many streets over from playing John Watson in Sherlock. Appearing in this series briefly is Richard Dormer, who uh, played Beric Don Darian from Game of Thrones plays a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent called Prescott. Got a great voice, this guy. Actually, would have liked to have seen more of him in the show. And look, there's a cast of millions, and actually double that because potentially everybody could be a shapeshifter. They played up very well to that in the advertising campaign, even inserting scrolls into the background in some newscasts on various uh, affiliated television stations in the U.S., Oh yes, just what we need to do, ramp up the paranoia that bit more. So let's have a look at some of the 
angles of this show. We know we've looked at the cast and who are the creators and all that kind of thing. Six episodes. There's room for it to develop and breathe. Perhaps not too much because the episodes are all close to an hour long each. But you know that's that's a couple of movies worth. So we'll see how they go with it as it goes on. Because I've seen just the sort of start of this show and it drops each week. I did say that I thought maybe it's not a good message to send that refugees may decide to steal your planet at this particular point in time. We'll see how much inflection they can put upon that, how much colour they can give the idea. And I don't mean just green. It's definitely very gritty. I was looking forward to a Cold War-style spy drama. You know, a big fan of that kind of genre. Uh, you know, from Callan through to... Riley, Ace of Spies, and well, you know the whole thing. Uh, Man from Uncle actually even has some of that going on, in it, along with the the cool sort of space age spy fi angle. That's the television series as well as the uh, recent remake movie. Uh, the Moscow setting, which they start in, uh, actually all filmed in uh, London and Liverpool. It works well with its Cold War baggage, and. What is the Russian intelligence service doing with all of this unfolding in their capital city as the plot develops? I guess they've been busy with their terrible war in Ukraine. Or did that even occur in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? That's a question I also wanted to know. COVID, did they avoid all of that with the Thanos snap? Were there not enough people to spread it? Who knows? That hasn't been addressed yet. You know, that I can wander off on a long thing about the whole uh, dusting and resurrection of people. There's so many fascinating angles to that too. Anyhow, I won't do that. <laughs> so there's other things I thought. Maybe the uh, the first episode, it's fairly slow paced as they're introducing or reintroducing some of the characters. And they're also a little bit flat in places, but I thought they sustained the tension well, even with that that very old-fashioned uh, default to playing tense music throughout the scenes. You know, remember that sort of thing from X-Files? Oh, it was a little bit more subtle in X-Files. And I, I've enjoyed this show in a way so far. It's good to see Nick Fury again. Uh, I really thought he got some of his best time on screen in in both the uh, the Captain Marvel where movie where the character was de-aged and also in the Winter Soldier movie, where we got to see Nick Fury in furious action against the Winter Soldier and forces of Hydra. And the idea that he's grown a bit old, uh, well, you know, that's that's a, a good trope to lean into, because the whole idea of... of uh, Samuel L. Jackson playing an ageing action hero. Well, that's got some credit to it. You know, it's very meta. And it's the sort of thing that we would expect to see in a well-developed and long-lived series of television shows or indeed movies. Oh, and by the way, it's got a really unsettling title sequence which crossed over into the Uncanny Valley. It's basically scrolls depicted as paintings and artwork which kind of morph during the sequence and it was created by Method Studios and they use generative artificial intelligence and yeah so this is an AI television series title sequence done with the help of AI prompts 
Wow. So on the one hand, this is actually entirely meta-appropriate for the scrolls. They're file humans, and the artwork is morphing and shifting and changing. And yeah, as I said, it's very disturbing. On the other hand, well, the timing of it, appearing in light of the 2023 Writers Guild of America strike and potentially uh, other unions, and well, one of the things they're fighting for is not to be replaced by AI scripting algorithms. The parallels are obvious and have implications for people working in the visual effects field in Hollywood. So, you know, it's a very controversial title sequence, and it, I'm sort of half and half. I actually can have a, a foot in both camps, really. It's a dastardly thing to replace humans with AI and put them out of work, and also at the same time, it is entirely appropriate for this show to have that sequence. I know that there were human beings involved in the prompts to get the AI to work on all of this, so in one respect, it's just another tool, uh, like a digital paintbrush, but on the other hand, it also puts people out of work, so, you know, tomato, tomato, it's all there. I cannot solve that problem, and we will move on. But the parallels are quite interesting at this particular point. All right, so, look, overall, I thought the first episode was very watchable with some standout moments. I think they used the fake location, which is kind of funny. It's um, England standing in for the Soviet, not for the Soviet Union, but for modern-day Russia. The action is quite well staged, I thought, and the spy craft, the trade craft, is reasonably impressive and convincing at times. I'd like to see a few more gadgets involved in that too, because, you know, Nick Fury in the 60s, he was the spy-fi guy in the Marvel comic universe. You know, all those helicarriers and flying cars and glider suits and all that sort of stuff. Ah, well... But this is more down-to-earth, quite literally. So, you know, it's a design choice, I guess. All right, well, that's about it for looking at Secret Invasion today. We'll see how it goes. It's on Disney Plus streaming. There are six episodes, but they're dropping one week at a time. Now, I don't actually have a sample of Chris Bauer's soundtrack for Secret Invasion. His work on television shows like Bridgerton and Mrs. America and When They See Us and so on is well known. But I don't think the bits of the soundtrack are out yet that I've been able to find for Secret Invasion. However, there are many serious needle drops within the show. At one stage, uh, Nick and Sonia sit down to have a discussion, and Nick selects a record from her collection and puts it on a turntable to play it. And you do wonder if he's just trying to fox anyone who happens to be trying to recording by having uh, background music, but, you know... It's actually pretty laid-back stuff, so maybe it doesn't do all that much <laughs> to screen their conversation. But it is by John William Coltrane, iconic and massively influential American jazz saxophonist, composer and band leader, you know, so important in the history of jazz and 20th century music overall. So Equinox, well, it's a in the minor blues frame, and it's a jazz standard, and it's a very slow sort of feeling track and um, in this case the song Equinox was named by Coltrane's wife uh, Neymar 
the idea is that this sort of inclines both ways, neither away or towards the sun. And John Coltrane apparently was born on the autumn equinox of 1926. This track came out uh, in 1964, um, originally issued on the album Coltrane's Sound. In this case, I've lifted it from the very best of John Coltrane. So, John Coltrane's Equinox lays down a little bit of mood for Secret Invasion. In the words of Nick Fury, Here we are all back on Earth with nothing but our wit and our will to save the world. This is Peter Woodward. I play the Technomage Galen in Babylon 5 and Crusade. And you are listening to Zero G. Who do you serve? And who do you trust? John Coltrane there with Equinox from the best of John Coltrane. One of many pointed needle drops in the Secret Invasion television series. (laughs) That uh, ID card was Peter Woodward, who of course is Edward Woodward's son. Edward Woodward used to play not only the Equalizer, but the cool spy, a ruthless and sentimental couple of streaks, David Callan, back in the 60s and 70s. And now to a streaming series on Amazon Prime called Dead Lock. Not Death Lock, after the Marvel character, but Dead Lock, as in Lake. And it is, as I mentioned, Tasmanian feminist, yeah, noir fiction. So it's a crime detective series and set in a small town not that far from Twin Peaks or (laughs) that sort of place, or or even Fargo, really. It's got that kind of whimsical crime procedural vibe to it. And it's actually in Tasmania. And gloriously filmed it is too. I think location is definitely a key part of this intriguing television show. Now, look, you know I love a good Aussie quirky show, you know, Utopia, uh, The Fast Lane, going back in time, that kind of thing, really. So this one really hit the spot. The Stranger Calls, that's another one of good memory, and Outland, too, of course. But, you know, before I get run off into a vast catalogue of Australian weird (laughs) television, uh, this one is by the two Kates, as they are inevitably known, Kate McLennan and also Kate McCartney. So, you know, they're performers who we've seen in the Get Kraken sketch show, amongst many, many other things, but this is their newest venture. Well, you know, it was new at the time that they did it. So it takes the best of their abilities as performers and writers and producers and so on, and blends them all together in a show that's whip-smart. And it is one that I have highly recommend to you. However, I do say that it's not safe for work or perhaps for the years of young'uns or anyone who's sensitive to swearing, because my oath, this is a sweary show. You know, Peter Capaldi has nothing on these characters. Well, actually, he's 
probably on par with this show. <laughs> so okay, basically the setup is quite simple. It's an eight-part series and what happens is that a body washes up on the beach. Uh, this town that's um, located next to a very, very large lake and thereby hangs the tail as the local senior sergeant of police is drawn into this exciting, exhilarating and amazingly quirky detective story. Now, this is a small town, so it has actually got a large cast of people and I'm going to leave that overview for a bit later because this is one show that I really want to talk to with our resident expert on police procedural shows, and that's Megan McHugh, our co-host. Not here today, but would like to go into it a bit further. And besides, I've only seen a few episodes of this show as it ramps along. So, uh, with the characters in this show, said it's Deadlock, Tasmania. They're preparing for a winter festival, and the thing about the town is that it's become a bit of an LGBTQI mecca. And that's what it's known for, and the economy is pretty much geared to that, which causes friction with the original residents. And you know, there's some complications there too, which bear upon the investigation. So you've got Kate Box playing Senior Sergeant Dulcie Collins. Uh, we've known her from um, playing Lou Kelly in the Wentworth reboot, and. She was also uh, in the Rake series, in addition to that, the 2018 miniseries adaptation of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, she has a great eye roll in this. She plays the character with dogged determination. She tries to be by the book, but she's also juggling difficulties in her relationship with her partner, Kaff. So, you know, obviously, you can't be a police constable or detective in any of these shows without having a few spins in your relationship. So, she is, speaking of relationships, partnered in this show with Madeline Sami playing Detective Eddie Redcliffe, who is from Darwin. She's blown into the city, or the town that is, of Deadlock, and she's supposed to be a quite feral detective. Uh, she's the one with the extreme porta potty mouth and she's a great character and so they make that sort of odd couple. I haven't seen her before in too many things. She's a New Zealand actress and she was in Xena Warrior Princess but that's probably no indication of her array of talents since everybody in New Zealand has been in Xena Warrior Princess or Lord of the Rings or both. Uh, just to... Um, Quote one of the lines, Dulcie says to it one stage apologetically, obviously Deadlock isn't perfect, and Eddie Redcliffe picks up with, it's Satan's effing snow globe, you know, and it's all like that throughout the show. It actually makes you feel like you're watching a bit of Deadwood in, <laughs> it's set in Tasmania this time around. So amazing, and it's actually one of the highlights of the show. So maybe not one for the kiddies. And, as if that wasn't enough, there's full frontal male and female nudity in this story. Why not? It's an adult fiction. I also noticed uh, Nina Oyama is in this too. We've seen her before in Utopia. She plays the assistant 
Courtney Kano in the third and fourth season of that series. So she plays a, an eager, perhaps too eager, young constable who had a sideline in forensics, which explains her mm, offbeat relationship with a pathologist in town who's a bit of a prick, basically. But nevertheless, that's how the show develops. Everyone's got some sidelines in this one. Tom Ballard plays Constable Sven Alderman, and he's a gay policeman who has some quite nerdy-like behaviour throughout the show and is often getting sidetracked by different things. But, you know, these two stalwarts of the local plod are able to ably assist quite ably actually at times the two detectives as they struggle with their own interactions and previous baggage involved in their lives and also other issues involved between the conflict between the LGBTQI folk in the town. The fact that there's this blow-in festival every year which upends everything. Uh, The mayor's Issues with trying to keep things going, even though there's a string of murders appearing in her town. You know, it's a little bit like Jaws there. Uh, And so on, you know. So there's a quite interesting little munch together of things going on here in the series. Deadlock, which is streaming on Amazon Prime at the moment. There are quite a few episodes into it. uh, Eight episodes in all. Look, I want to go into this more when Megan is back, because I think this is a show that definitely she like to comment upon all right well that's about it for zero g for today we will go out with a track by tori amos which is a needle drop in the deadlock series it's cornflake girls and it's from their album under the pink okay joe brunatic coming up next with astral glamour thank you listeners g'day this is rob jan thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r zero g a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.